You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. We're dealing with Lord's Days 5 and 6 together of the Heidelberg Catechism, and to that end, we're going to open our Bibles. We'll read first of all from Isaiah chapter 53, and thereafter from 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 7. We begin then with the Old Testament reading from Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed For our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Thus far, our Old Testament reading, then we turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, 
who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. And a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. I preach to you this afternoon from the word of our God as the church summarizes and confesses this in Lord's Day 5 and most of Lord's Day 6 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Since, according to God's righteous judgment, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment, how can we escape this punishment and be again received into favor? God demands that his justice be satisfied, therefore we must make full payment either by ourselves or through another. Can we ourselves make this payment? Certainly not. On the contrary, we daily increase our debt. Can any mere creature pay for us? No. In the first place, God will not punish another creature for the sin which man has committed. And furthermore, no mere creature can sustain the burden of God's eternal wrath against sin and deliver others from it. What kind of mediator and deliverer must we seek? One who is a true and righteous man, and yet more powerful than all creatures, that is, one who is at the same time true God. Why must he be a true and righteous man? He must be a true man because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sinned should pay for sin. He must be a righteous man because one who himself is a sinner cannot pay for others. Why must he at the same time be true God? He must be true God so that by the power of his divine nature he might bear in his human nature the burden of God's wrath and might obtain for us and restore to us righteousness and life. But who is that mediator who at the same time is true God and a true and righteous man? Our Lord Jesus Christ, who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, you may have missed it, but at the end of July, the Reverend Dr. John R. W. Stott died in London, England at the age of 90 years. Now, if that name does not ring a bell, then let me inform you that John Stott has been a leader in conservative evangelicalism in England and around the world for about 50 years. He did much to revive biblical Christianity in the Anglican Church of England, and he also did much to promote the cause of evangelism and mission around the world. And as well, he was instrumental in organizing and leading the great International Congress on World Evangelization in Lausanne, Switzerland, in 19. 74. In addition to being a church leader and an evangelist, John Stott was also a prolific writer. He wrote widely on ethical issues, capital punishment, abortion, euthanasia. He authored special books for pastors as well as on preaching. As well, he wrote great commentaries on the Sermon on the Mount, Acts, Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, and so forth. 
Oh, and one more thing, and that, by the way, has everything to do with Lord's Days 5 and 6. John Stott wrote a great little book that's often forgotten today. It's called Your Mind Matters. And in this book, he directed the attention of his readers to the fact that Christianity, while being a religion of the heart, has everything to do with the mind as well. Ably and succinctly, he drew out the meaning and the implications of Romans 12, and it's saying, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And Colossians 3, which opens, set your minds on things above. You see, in a day and an age where Christianity often gets identified and muddled up with hype and excessive emotionalism, John Stott reminded people that the Christian faith is a faith that rests on truth and that calls for mental effort, mental discipline, and mental renewal. So what does all of this have to do with Lord's Days 5 and 6, you ask? Well, some people have been critical of these particular Lord's Days as being, they say, far too rational, far too mind-oriented, even scholastic. They go way too far into reasoning. They're geared much too much to the mind. Now, I, for one, do not think so. Although I will admit that in these two Lord's Days we do move into the realm of logic and reasoning, only then it's important for us to realize that this is holy logic and biblical reasoning. And to see that in some detail, I would like to preach to you this afternoon on the following theme, the logic, the holy logic of deliverance. Now, first of all, we're going to recognize some dead ends. Then we're going to identify some right conditions. And finally, we'll find the perfect solution. Well, beloved, getting back to the catechism, you cannot miss the fact that we have made the big jump. We have jumped from the land of sin and misery into the land of deliverance. Above Lord's Day 5, there are those big, bold letters, Our Deliverance. And that's great. That's a relief. We spent four Lord's Days in the land of sin and misery. And for most people, except for the spiritually sadistic, that's probably quite enough. So now it's on to deliverance. And not just to any vague and general deliverance either, no. Take note of that word, our. This is about us. It's about you and me. It's about our deliverance from sin. Our miseries. From God's punishment. And deliverance from God's wrath. In short, Lord's Day 5 tells us that some great... Tremendous news is moving our way. Only in this case, it has to be said as well, that the great news doesn't fall on us like a sudden avalanche. It comes slowly, piece by piece, little by little. You know, in some ways, it's like driving to Toronto. You hop in your car, 
you zoom across BC, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba. And once you hit the Ontario border, you assume that Toronto is just around the corner. What you forget, however, is that between Kenora and Toronto, there are a lot of trees. And there are countless hills, and there are a million lakes, and endless piles of rock. It takes days. Well, in some ways, Lord's Days 5 and 6 are like that. Above them, there is written the words, our deliverance, but when you read those particular words, you are not quite there yet. You still have a ways to go. He has a notice that question 12 confirms this. It it opens with a long question full of confession, desperation, and desire. The confession is, since according to God's righteous judgment, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment. Notice. No more backtalk, no more excuses, no more blame shifting. Rather, the writer of the catechism admits that we had it coming. God is right after all. And then too, there is desperation. It's in those words, how can we escape this punishment? What can we do about this? How can we avoid it? And finally, there is desire. There is this great, overwhelming desire. How can we be received into favor again? We want to go home. We want to turn back the clock. We want to experience God's smile again. How do we do that? Well, notice the immediate answer is not very encouraging. First, we are reminded about God's justice again. Of course, we'd rather hear about his mercy, his love, his compassion, and that's understandable. Only we get a reminder here first. We need to be reminded again about God's justice, how quick we are to jump over it, skip it, and move on to big, better, and brighter things. But, you know, the catechism echoing the scriptures faithfully insists that we not forget the justice of our God. We need to be aware of it. We need to come to grips with it. We need to remember it and to work with it. And what does God's justice say? It says that sin is an offense. That sin cultivates wrath. That sin needs to be dealt with. And the only way to deal with sin, once and for all, is for full payment to be made. Partial payment will not do. A down payment will not do either. Full, complete, total payment has to be made. And that, beloved, is hard news. Perhaps we were expecting some relief. Maybe like Conrad Black, we were hoping for a lesser, kinder, 
shorter sentence. But nothing doing. Only full payment will do it. Disappointing news, to say the least. But nevertheless, there is still some hope. For notice, the catechism doesn't put a period after the word payment. No, there is a comma there, and after the comma are these words, either by ourselves or through another. So here's the deal. Either we pay or someone else pays for us. There is some light at the end of the tunnel. And the first glimmering of hope appears to be with us. We should pay, and that doesn't immediately strike us as impossible. After all, we're used to paying, right? We pay for school, we pay for church, we pay for houses, mortgages, food for holidays. Life is full of payments, isn't it? So what's one more payment? Only this one is different. Because this is paying for sin. For our sins. And can we do that? Well, beloved, not if you read Romans 8, the verses 1 to 4 carefully. There it speaks about us being under the law of sin and death, about what the sinful nature cannot do, about our inability to meet the requirements of the law. You see, the long and the short of it is that we cannot pay for our sins. And indeed, every attempt to do so will lead from bad to worse. Daily we increase our debts. So, the end result is we can't pay. But nevertheless, not all is lost. For there are still some other options. What options? Well, there are animals and there are angels. Let's make them pay for us. Only not so fast. And indeed, there is an Old Testament refrain that kills this option. You find it in the verses 4 and 18 of Ezekiel 18. The soul who sins is the one who will die. Did animals rebel against God? Did angels eat from the wrong tree in the Garden of Eden? The answer is, beloved, that neither can pay for our sins because neither had a direct hand in our sins or in our sinning. And to make them pay would be a violation of God's justice. Just as you do not kill your dog for the nasty words you spoke to your wife and get off scot-free. So you cannot expect a cow or a seraphim to take the fall for you either. So, beloved, really, what does most of Lord's Day 5 deal with? It deals with dead ends. And it eliminates them. Using our minds, reading the scriptures carefully reveals a return to favor will not happen in any of these ways. We cannot pay, our pets cannot pay, our guardian angels cannot pay either. 
So where does that leave us? Well, I suggest to you it leaves us a little more than some abstract theological options. It's a bit like like dreaming. You know, sometimes you face a certain problem in life and you try to solve it. You might try this, you might try that. However, nothing seems to work. So what do you do next? You resort to dreaming. You let your imagination fly, and in that particular realm, you come up with an answer, with a solution. At least in your dreams, you can see light at the end of the tunnel. So when we dream about our sins, our needs, our roadblocks, and God's demands, what do we come up with? Well, I think we come up with something like answer 15 of the catechism. What we really need, when all is said and done, is a mediator and a deliverer who looks like this. First, he has to be a true and righteous man. And second, he has to be true God. Now, someone may wonder about this answer and ask a few questions And the first question is, why does he have to be a true and a righteous man? And beloved, the answer again is is holy logic, biblical logic. Put on your biblical mind and ask yourself, why does our mediator and deliverer have to be a true man? And the answer lies back in Ezekiel 18. If the soul that sins is the soul that dies, then the soul that delivers is the soul that sinned. So the answer lies not in someone who looks like man, but in someone who is truly and fully man. Completely Human. A successful mediator and deliverer has to share the nature of the offending party. In other words, he has to be like us. But nevertheless, that alone is not enough. This mediator needs to be more than us. He needs to be better than us. He also needs to be a righteous man. A real man is not good enough. A righteous man is also required. To put it simply, he has to be like Adam before he fell. Or you can put it this way, he has to be like Adam without sin, without stain, without inherited guilt and pollution. In other words, what we need is a real man and a pure man. Now, obviously, our dreams are getting a bit stretched here, right? It's becoming more and more far out. For where can you find a real man and a perfect man? I know the ladies are always looking for a perfect man. But I have yet to hear a lady say, I have found 
the perfect man. Where in the words of Hebrews 7.26 can we find someone who is holy, blameless, pure, and set apart from sinners? But you know, there's also something else, something even more impossible and unlikely in this Lord's Day. Where can we find a mediator and deliverer who is not just pure man, perfect man, but is also true God? And why true God? Well, answer 17. Look at it. He has to be God in order to accomplish three things that have to do with bearing, obtaining, and restoring. First, he has to be God because only someone who is God can bear the burden of God's wrath. All of us humans would be instantly pulverized, flattened, vaporized. And secondly, he has to be God if he's going to be able to obtain, to win, to earn something as utterly priceless as righteousness and life for us. And thirdly, he has to be God if he's going to restore us, to to usher us into and eternally allow us to revel in righteousness and eternal life. Truly, to bear for us to earn for us, to restore to us all of these treasures. We need someone who's also God. Well, where do you find such a being? Where is pure man, perfect man, and God all wrapped up in one? Where is such an utterly astounding personality? Well, let's admit that human logic, human reasoning, and no amount of human manufacturing can create such a person. Superman, Spider-Man, the Incredible Hulk, and all kinds of other strong, noble figures belong in the realm of comic books, but not in the realm of fact and reality. But yet, before we dismiss all of this dreaming as just so many pipe dreams, we need to remember something. And what we need to remember is that there is also, in the midst of all of this, something called holy logic. Biblical Logic. For does Isaiah 9, verse 6, not speak of a child, a son, who is at the same time called mighty God? And does Jeremiah not speak over and over again about the Lord, our righteousness? And does the angel Gabriel not speak to Joseph about the coming of Emmanuel, God, with us? You see, people who believe dream unlike any other. Filled with holy logic, their minds can soar. 
They can identify the conditions that would make for a perfect deliverer and mediator. But yet not only can such people dream wild dreams, they're also blessed to see their dreams become reality. For who does God, who does God with whom Mary says nothing is impossible, whom does he send in the fullness of time? He sends us more than just dreams about a perfect mediator and deliverer. He sends him in the flesh. He turns our dreams into reality, hope, and hopes into fulfillment. Question 18 asks, but who is that mediator who at the same time is true God and a true and righteous man? And then answer 18 follows. And you know, answer 18 is a shout. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Here the identity of our mediator and deliverer is revealed, and his name is not Muhammad or Confucius or Buddha, and not Joseph Smith either. No, his name is Lord. He's the master of all. His name is Jesus, meaning he's the savior from sin. His name is Christ, meaning the anointed, the special agent of God the Father. And he is everything that we as fallen men and women need. He's got answer to all of our misery, to all of our sins, to all of our transgressions. He is the hope and the dream of the ages. Holy logic points us to Christ. But yet it does more. For holy logic would lead us not only to identify him, as necessary as that may be, but holy logic also leads us to embrace him in faith. The catechism calls him, notice, our Lord Jesus Christ. That's very personal language, very possessive language. This is not Jesus Christ. No, this is my Christ. This is our Christ. See, this is also challenging language. It's the kind of language that forces us not just to to focus our minds, but, but also to search our hearts. Who is this Christ to you? What is this Christ for you? How do you see him? What are you doing with him? You know, again, the Heidelberg Catechism, echoing the Holy Scriptures, reminds us that this astounding, unbelievable Savior will benefit us not at all unless and until he becomes our Savior. 
In that regard, the Apostle Paul writes something rather profound in his letter to the Colossians. He writes, when, when Christ, who is our life, appears, then we also will appear with him in glory. And, and the main thrust of those words is to remind us that Christ is going to appear again and that we're going to appear with him and that when he appears again, it's going to be glorious and so our appearance with him will be glorious as well. But there's something else in those words that you may overlook. That's a beautiful expression. When Christ, who is your life, appears. You know, the Apostle Paul here is saying, if you want Christ to be your glory tomorrow, he has to be your life today. And is he that? Is he that to you? Is he your life? Is he your breath? Is he your food and your drink? Is he your everything? Well, if he is, then you're well on the road to deliverance. And the next stop truly is glory. And so, beloved, may your minds be renewed and restored. They matter. May God fill them with his holy logic. May he fill them with Christ. And may he truly and forever be your life. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.